Today on the Inventive Health Podcast, we're talking innovation in pharmaceutical communications with Leah Householder. I'm Jeff Stewart. I'm your host from Inventive Health Consulting. So, Leah Householder, welcome to the Inventive Health Podcast. Thank you. You are Director of Innovation for for Inventive Health. For Inventive Health Communications. What does that mean, Director of Innovation? That's a a title that I'm very, very envious of your title. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I was pretty proud to put it on LinkedIn. So what's innovative about what's happening now within pharma communications? A lot of them happen at the blend of advertising and service. Mm -hmm. So we have one client, for example, who had identified just a persistent challenge at retail. So Mm -hmm. people going to pick up a prescription, realizing that their copay card wasn't activated, leaving dissatisfied. So instead of pushing just another message to them, Mm -hmm. we work with them to develop a text-to-activate program. So with just a few swipes on their mobile phone, they could get that copay card totally activated and available on their device. That kind of blend of experience and advertising coming together to actually create unique opportunities for patients is where we're seeing the most innovation happening. Mostly on the technology side? Hmm. That's a good question. It doesn't always necessarily come down to the channel or the technology. So the way we do innovation, we do a lot of co-creation. We try to understand how people's expectations are changing and in new ways that brands could fit in. So for example, we got together a group of nurses to really lay out for us what's happening in their workflow and how what's happening in that workflow is impacting the patients and families that they're trying to serve. And some of the ideas that came out of it were very technology-oriented, how to make it easier to get service all in one place or to get proactive updates about where they were in the process instead of having to go out to look for them. But some of them that I would still define as innovative didn't look like technology at all. They needed to change um, the interface that they had with the company. So instead of it being a sales rep, it would be someone who was very focused on reimbursement support, little tax and experience change that really helped that customer meet their own work goals. If we think about pharma communications and what things that are traditionally done, what is it that companies should be doing that they're really not doing now? A lot, and it varies by brand. Why is innovation important? It's important Mm -hmm. because over time, the effectiveness of even the channels that we trust the most, email, banner ads, television, the effectiveness of those wanes Mm -hmm. as people develop advertising blindness or they move to new channels. So we have a desire as an industry to test new things, to try new ways to engage them. Without that, you're designing plans that not only don't sustain ROI, they actually they actually go down or decrease over time. So I could come to you and say, I need the exact same investment as last year. Just expect it to do a little worse. So the places they need to innovate are really finding their customers where they are right now and delivering the experience and evidence that they expect in that channel. This is a, a real challenge for pharmaceutical marketers, though, because they don't have a way to test and learn in this highly regulated industry. So we recently did a survey with the um, brand attendees at the I for Pharma conference, and 84% said they knew that innovation was critical to meeting their business strategies, but 0% said they strongly agreed they knew which experiences or channels needed their attention and needed that change. That's why we have invested as inventive and a predictive analytics platform so that there is the ability for pharma to try new things with confidence. You mentioned ROI, that's return on investment. Yes. When I looked at it as head of search and evaluation, we had to figure out which things worked and Mm -hmm. which things didn't. It seems like there's a lot of um, 
There's a lot of smoke and mirrors in ROI kind of analysis. A lot of claims of ROI that are very high that don't seem to be there. What do we do about that? Oh, it's true. And especially when you look at all the different swim lanes that our clients are trying to look across, what's the banner ad really doing versus the email click through versus the second touch marketing that you might do? All of those claim to have earned your time and attention. They claim the win. But if we really got as many sales as we did clicks, the revenue numbers would look incredibly Hmm. different. Our clients have come to expect ongoing measurement and analytics to judge what was done in the past. We're trying to turn our attention to modeling the future Mm -hmm. so that when they're going into a new channel or a new kind of customer engagement, they're able to say with confidence what the revenue impact will be of those new those channels and engagements down to even a segment level. And so how do we tease out whether or not it's one thing that caused it or something else? It almost sounds like the eyeball problem from the uh, dot com era. We're capturing so many eyeballs, but that doesn't really mean revenue. Right. So you do it with a market simulation. So that lets you try any different number of permutations of marketing spend, message, channel mix, and you can see which change impacts the impacts that revenue number that you want to get to impacts that bottom line. At any one time, just imagine the amount of data and research that our clients have access to. Mm-hmm. It may not feel like they have all the answers, but they certainly have all the input. They are getting those ongoing tracking um, metrics, like the ones you're talking about, what's happening in social listening or traffic on the website. They're investing in third-party research for trying to highlight a specific channel or customer interaction. And then they've got all their own market and sales research going on, whether that's a longitudinal study or something designed to crack just one question or challenge. And it's hard to know how to compare and how to get a clear picture out of Mm -hmm. all that different data especially because some of it's quantitative, some of it's qualitative, some of it's at the individual level, some of it's very much aggregated. How do you get a lens on that? So the uh, predictive analytics platform we use basically takes all that data, loads it into a a simple predictive simulation, and then lets you run tests against it. So how do you know if it's going to work? Well, the first thing that we do is model backwards. This is how we're going to get to your revenue number. We hold one piece of information back. Usually it is revenue. And we ask the system to guess, based on all the data that we've loaded in, what would the revenue of each of the competitors in that marketplace have looked like a year ago? When it can get that right, we know it's calibrated to go forward. So having different competitors in there is what seems like it might be key. Ideally, you'd want the same product with different things happening, but that doesn't usually happen. People just have their marketing spend and they've done it for a year, and it may be the same effort across the time period, or am I misunderstanding that? How does that work? How do you tell the difference among those things? Let me, how about I give you an example, Mm -hmm. and we can see how it would come to life and then answer more questions. Okay, so this example is in the heartburn space, and it was a drug that was um, currently a prescription moving to an over-the-counter sale. Mm -hmm. The client um, had grown up in in a pharmaceutical background and really wanted to run kind of the typical play. We call it the influencer strategy. It's where the doctor recommends or the pharmacist told me to get that. But there was a real desire for innovation in the company. They wanted to try something new and really understand if new channels or new experiences could change the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So they um, tested different scenarios in the system. So the question was, what would work to reach their revenue goal? Um, And they ran the influencer strategy, and it would have missed that goal by 48%. 
They ran a multimedia st- strategy. It would have just eked out the goal. And then they, they ran um, one that was really different for that company, which is trade support or all the kind of in-store experience you have when you go into a pharmacy. And it looked like it would beat the number. Now, what data did they need to be able to do that? Um, they wanted to bring in the attributes of each product in the market. So this one's known as the most effective or this one's known as the fastest acting. The competitive spend uh, by the current brand, as well as all the others in the marketplace, um, the channel preference of customers, and they used that underlying data to create the model. Essentially, they were able to then do simulations. So if we spent this much versus the competitor, what would happen if we use these channels, if we use this message to be able to start to see which of those combinations of things actually moves that revenue number to get us to our goal? And that launch I'm describing was the biggest RX to OTC launch in history. It beat their revenue goals significantly in a number that would make us all happy to report at the end of the year. What is it that you, you said that you can figure out what matters, like what moves the needle? Mm-hmm. What moves the needle that would really surprise people? What has the best ROI or the best few uh, returns on investment? The answer you don't want to hear, but that is totally true, is it varies dramatically by marketplace and product. Mm-hmm. So, for example, this the strategy that the, that the customer wanted to run that we didn't feel was right for that moment, that exact same strategy for another drug in that marketplace with a different combination of attributes or customers, it could have been the perfect play. There's just no single answer. And that's why simulation becomes such an interesting tool for strategists. If our clients do what we would typically expect from a company, they have to make one bet. You know, you bet on that one pilot you're going to be able to fund for the year. And you hope you're right. You hope you found that holy grail that you're talking about. But if you're wrong, you're out of budget, you're out of runway, maybe you're out of a job. Mm -hmm. Um, What simulation lets you do is test every idea every possible market approach that you have in your mind in a totally safe digital environment. You know what it sounds like to me is Moneyball, the movie <laughs> the movie with Brad Pitt and the, the book, the great book by Michael Lewis, where a team that doesn't have very much money is forced to be smart. That's right. So that's really interesting. And if we are thinking about that, what doesn't work? Is there something that really almost universally just doesn't really work very well? Are you asking me if QR codes kill kittens? Yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) No, let me think. The only thing that that doesn't work is not continuing to evolve and change. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at any channel, think about email open rates as an example, really trusted go-to source. Over a six-year period, that has a nice, steady bunny slope down as people feel that channel is too crowded and no longer deserves their attention. If you look at banner ads, it's a much steeper fall. So we need to be creating opportunities with our clients and with our brands to build that constant innovation and evolution into how they think. One of the ways we do that um, in communications is we talk a lot about a 70-20-10 approach to planning. Mm -hmm. So 70% are those tactics that you know and trust. You have projectable ROI. You have experience with them. It's the machine that runs and works. But 20% are evolutions from that 70% group um, with scale and ingenuity. So if email worked really well last year, how can you do it slightly differently this year with message, with lists, with engagement types to bring more people in? And then finally, 10% are entirely new ideas, things that have the potential to change your marketplace. Over time, those 20 and 10% buckets move into your 70% and create this ongoing engine of evolution and change, a lot of which, by the way, you can use these models to validate and know where to make the right bets. That kind of thinking, that kind of evolution, I think, is something that's still relatively new to healthcare. 
but it's been very trusted by other consumer and creative industries. So it's uh, the 70-20-10 approach is required at companies like Coca-Cola. Every brand manager needs to bring that to the table every year. But one of the stories um, I think is more interesting is from the BBC, so a big publishing organization. What they sell and how they differentiate is on how creative their programming is. And the late 90s, decision-making decision making there had gotten very conservative. Mm-hmm. Changes in management really willowing down the number of possibilities they could take to market. The CEO and CFO wanted to open up the possibilities without changing everything. So they created uh, what they called a gamble fund. It was 10% of the entire budget, and projects that couldn't be approved any other way went there for reconsideration. The very first project to make it through was The Office, the biggest program that that organization ever created. Wow. And is that what you think that a pharmaceutical company should really be doing with their marketing budget? Do you recommend the same? I do recommend it, yes. I think the 70-20-10 approach creates plans that both uh, deliver and then sustain ROI over time. Mm -hmm. gives you a very solid, easy-to-use filter for how to divide a marketing spend. But it also gives our brand teams the opportunity to experiment and to learn new skills within their organization in a way that doesn't put anything at risk. When you look at those same numbers in terms of time, it's really 50% of your time versus 25-25. Once you get that machine going and you know those tactics work, shouldn't take as much of your attention, creativity, and energy against them. You should really be working in those channels where there are new possibilities. The system, these predictive models will show you what the benchmark is, but Mm -hmm. with the right experience, you can beat that. So with the predictive models, we really understand the past and how the past applies and may apply to the future. But it is based on past. It's based on past history. If we're looking at 10% to put into something truly innovative, what's truly innovative? Well, we'd have the opportunity to um, optimize each part of that. So if you put your predictive model in and we understand what's happened in the past, we've calibrated it to Mm -hmm. know that the machine can guess correctly. We can model into the future. One of the most important things that tells you is what you can leave behind. So when you're making room in that budget for what to go forward with, making your simulations, you can start to see which tactics maybe have the least impact today. Maybe those are the ones that are set aside. And as you're selecting amongst the ideas for that 10 or 20%, you've got that safe environment to test in and consider. Um, And that same survey of the I for Pharma attendees we asked how many people feel that they have the ability to really test a new idea. The answer was only one in four that feel that they can actually try something new in their roles in pharmaceutical marketing. We want to be able to use these models to take those handcuffs off because over half of them said the reason, the number one reason they can't try new things is because they can't explain what the impact will be. And what are some of these new ideas? And then how do we test them? Is it, it's not couldn't be through simulation. It would have to be something else because we haven't seen them in the marketplace. They're innovative. That's true. And you know what? There probably always will be an idea or two that maybe you can't prove out in a model, but our data scientists are extremely creative about thinking about challenges like that. So if you were entering, let's say, a marketplace that had never had um, a particular kind of social engagement before or a way to support customers entirely on a digital platform. Now, there would be there would be ways to test that using analogs from other organizations, sure. even analogs from other industries. Those are the kind of things our data partners are really great at talking through. So often when I'm in a situation and I think, I don't know if I could test that, 
I take it to them and they craft different approaches that we might be able to get there. And like I said, a lot of this is data our clients already have. Mm -hmm. But when it's something like that, when it's an analog or it's out of industry, we still have lots of possibilities. There's a ton of data that we have access to and inventive that we can use as a go-to. Plus, we have a long library of other um, secondary data that we have the option to license. So the analytics I get. I'm still not getting something that I, I really want this answer. Yeah. What are the cool things that people are doing for pharmaceutical marketing? So the areas where I'm really seeing the most innovative work are around new kinds of visual stimulation to interrupt what people are experiencing. The patient or the, or the physician? Any of the audiences you're talking to. The okay. example I'm going to share with you is a physician example. Okay. And the other area is really combining product and service to have a better patient experience. So let's talk about that changing the visual stimulus. There are two examples that I like a lot that I've seen the last few years um, from clients. One was going into a conference setting. Um, they had identified the previous year that they'd spent all this money on interactive panels mm-hmm. and uh, screens, and no one would walk up to them. They were almost afraid to reach out and touch them. So we spent some time exploring different technologies, and we realized that the one place that everybody was willing to look was down. So we created an entire interactive floor where every step you took revealed new layers of information and experience. Um, We custom built the sensors so that it really did interact with every incremental movement that you made. And they were able to do an eye tracking survey right in the booth, got a ton more attention on the floor than every monitor in the booth combined. Now, step ahead a year, and we've had a number of clients um, experimenting with virtual reality. So we were able to create an in-booth experience that gave um, physicians, advocates, and nurses the firsthand experience of what it was like to have a seizure. So we were able to show them life through that patient's shoes in order to try to make information about or messages about more personal approaches to therapy really important. The people who participated in that booth experience spent an average of 30 minutes with the brand, an unheard of number. When you think about combining a service with the product, we've seen a number of interesting things. Um, one in the oncology space learned from ethnography done with nurses. And what we saw was there was a strong desire to be able to support every need that patient had, whether that was finding a support group, finding a great wig, finding um, um, some nutrition support. Mm -hmm. So we built all that localized information into a Yelp-style interface that gave nurses the ability to make really personal recommendations. That's really interesting. I want to go in your seizure booth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's an incredible experience. And we were able to work with um, an artist, a a director. It was her personal story that she had had... um, she had had uh, she had yeah. gone she had gone through a trauma mm-hmm. and had epilepsy herself. So she took us into her personal story. It's very emotional and very compelling. What do you think of direct to consumer advertising? Well, I love it. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I uh, hate it. <laughs> I do. You know, I think it. I think it plays a really important role in the healthcare space today. Yeah. Um, particularly in term in the primary care space and helping patients become more educated about what the options are to them. You think about our, our primary care doctors, particularly how many disease states they're dealing with, how many treatments are coming at them. And the, the direct to consumer advertising is really a way to connect brand and patient and a direct conversation about value and, and what impact a new drug can have on their life. Does it actually increase sales or does it just convince patients that they're going to die if they take it? <laughs> um, 
So there have been lots of studies that have shown that it does increase the number of requests to a physician. Okay. And depending on what kind of physician that is, that could that could result in a prescription uplift or or not in that particular practice. It's um I do think we're going to see speaking of innovation and something to test. I do think we're going to see a big shift in the call to action in direct-to-consumer ads in coming years. Mm -hmm. We did some research last year to try to understand the differences in how millennial physicians practice and the generations who came before them. Today, that's roughly one in five of primary care physicians are in that demographic. And what we found was that millennial physicians expect their patients to come in educated and informed, but not to ask for a drug by name. In fact, they're... Um, openness to prescribing a drug based on a patient ask was less than half of that of the generations wow. before them. So it's possible, like when you see the pressures of the regulations, the, some of the negative feedback that we receive from physicians around DTC ads, we could be looking at a moment to really tack. And instead of using those ads to drive you to a particular drug, use them to help better educate you on your condition and know how to ask the physician the right questions that lead to that product. I don't know if it's just the subset of times that I've been involved with direct-to-consumer advertising, but it's often been something fatally flawed in the approach, just the general approach, as an example. Uh, drugs where it's a highly payer-driven choice. There are two drugs in the market. The payer is choosing whether or not you are covered or you're not covered, and the cost is far too high, over $50,000 for the drug. Why go direct to consumer and advertise for that? They have really one choice. You're saying that there's there's no other therapy on the market? There's no other good therapy on the market. Driving to the market leader in this case, that right. makes sense if you're the market leader and you're covered by most plans. It does not make sense if you are not the market leader. At least in my mind, it seems just foolish. You know, I think in a way, you're pointing out another driver of why these kind of predictive analytics we were talking about are so important. Because without some kind of a model to show you that for your attributes in the marketplace, your competitive situation, your access, your spend, without a clear model to show you, our clients are going on gut. And if the last drug that they launched happened to have a slightly different set of variables and DTC did gangbusters effectiveness for them, that's the only evidence they have. Mm -hmm. And what we're able to do with these models is basically give you a clearer guide. If you do this, you get that. If you do this, you get that. Um, that's a kind of clarity that I think they haven't done before. I can imagine if it's really a terrible direct-to-consumer strategy, I can imagine the conversations that got them there. I'm sure you've been in these conversations as well. Well, this is what worked for this drug. This is what I saw in my last job. This is the way we've always done it. And without an interrupter, those are the paths we keep marching down. And they result in these types of ads that have you pulling your hair out watching TV. <laughs> Finally, Leah, if I could ask, is the agency, if it's the FDA, dealing well, poorly, something that can be manageable? What do we do with the agency with innovation? They don't deal with innovation very well. Interesting to think about right now because the FDA has identified specific areas where they think pharmaceutical marketers need to push harder to educate patients, to be transparent, to help people make good decisions. So in one way, you could say the FDA has painted for us some interesting guardrails or focus areas of where we could innovate with them and create change. But I know what you're asking, really, that when these new channels come out and people don't know how to engage and they behave very conservatively because of it, 
What I can tell you is that typically the same rules apply. If you look at the number of letters that are delivered within a year, the number of violations created by pharmaceutical companies, way more of them are in traditional channels, traditional engagements than are in new ones. Oh, really? Yes. So if you're able to really look beyond the channel to what we know about fair balance, what we know about interacting with consumers, those rules apply wherever you're making that engagement. So what I've seen companies do really well is proactively lay out new guardrails for their teams. When social media was new, way back when, way back when I was new at Inventive, um, I had a client ask if we couldn't pull together a panel to help to create the guidelines and guardrails for their organization. So they brought together all the digital leaders in the category, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, but they also brought in lots of agency partners who knew healthcare well, who knew the rules well, along with their own regulatory team. And in a day and a half session, we were able to craft out, here's where we're comfortable with teams experimenting. Here's what some examples of that model look like. And then we were able to put that in the hands of the frontline brand leaders. And that particular organization I'm I'm mentioning was one of the first um, to engage in social media and then also has had some of the most lasting impact in that channel. Leah Householder, thank you very much for being on the Inventive Health Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Inventive Health Podcast. I'm Jeff Stewart, your host. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, or if you just want to talk through a particular issue, a really hard problem that you're having at your own biopharmaceutical company, you may contact me at podcast at inventivehealth.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. The firsthand experience of what it was like to have a seizure. It's really interesting. I want to go in your seizure booth.